Um, um, I would like to begin by thanking you all as a church family um, on behalf of the two of us, the, the Pell family. We have really, really enjoyed being a part of this church community and church family for the past, I don't know, four or five years. So thank you. You've really cared for us, and it's been a blessing to be able to participate and, and be here. And this is not the last time we will see you. Um, certainly, we'll be here to visit my mother and when she's able to bring her to church, and so I look forward to seeing you again, but I just wanted to make sure and express my thanks. It's been a, a wonderful um, season in our lives. Um, I learned early on um, in my marriage that my husband hates being scared. So um, you know how when you're growing up, you play those funny tricks on your siblings or your friends where you're like hide in the closet and then they come in the room and you jump out and scare them or you hide around the corner in the house and when they walk past, you jump out and scare them and they scream and you scream and everyone laughs. It's really funny. Well, Scott doesn't think that is funny. Um, he doesn't like that at all. Um, and I can remember coaching my kids, our kids as they were growing up, don't scare dad, don't scare dad. He doesn't like it, he doesn't like it. Um, uh, Scott doesn't laugh uh, when that happens. Um, his, in fact, his response isn't to jump up and down and laugh, ha ha ha, that was so fun. His response is to get angry. And it is like immediate. Um, his anger revealed something. And for Scott, the experience of being, you know, suddenly surprised and that moment of like terror or panic or whatever that maybe the rest of us think is kind of funny. Um, he, he does not like that. It's not a pleasant experience for him. And the response of anger is actually a response for him of fear um, or dislike. And so we don't do that in our house. Um, <clears throat> anger is one of those emotions that many times is actually about something else, isn't it? It's actually about something different. Um, anger isn't an emotion or the expression of something else. And the important thing is what is anger revealing? Like, what does it reveal? Sometimes anger reveals insecurity or fear. Um, a scholar once um, I heard said that anger is what we experience when our own agendas are thwarted or postponed or inconvenienced. I think that's a really good description of anger. You know, when you're driving on the highway and someone cuts you off and there's that instant moment of anger, it's because your agenda of getting somewhere faster or, you know, whatever has been thwarted or postponed. So that anger is actually revealing something else. There are a lot of times when anger is justified, right? For instance, in response to trauma we've experienced or to injustice, but many times, Anger reveals the condition of our hearts. Sometimes it shows us that our hearts are amiss, that something is off, but it reveals the condition or the state of our heart. I want to even suggest this morning that anger reveals what is in the upside down. Anyone recognize that? Um, we are Stranger Things fans. We just binge watched the most recent season. Um, and I won't reveal anything, but the whole series of Stranger Things is about the upside down, right? Um, I hear a getting a few nods. It's the ups, the world, the dark world underneath that's just on the other side. Um, it's really similar, but it's dark. It's the um, upside down. And there are cracks or gates that allow passage between 
our world and the upside down. I think that anger is a crack or a gate that reveals the upside down. The condition of our hearts, uh, the nature of our values, our desires, our fear, our pain, it's a crack that allows that to seep through. Now we've seen um, actually quite a bit of anger so far in this series in the Minor Prophets. There's been a lot of um, God's anger at idolatry and at injustice. His anger's been directed at oppression and favoritism and corruption and false worship um, that comes out of his people. God's anger has shown up um, in the injustice and in his judgment to other nations as well. Uh, last week in Obadiah, Steve taught that God's anger was kindled at the unjust, really cruel treatment of Edom towards their brothers, um, towards the nation of Israel. This week we have another glimpse at anger, but it's actually the anger of the prophet this time around. This week we get to see and to watch the anger of a prophet get kindled. And our key question this morning then is what does his anger reveal? What does his anger reveal? We're talking about the prophet Jonah. And I know it's, it's, it feels a bit of a shift to be talking about Pentecost all along so far in the service. And now we're going to be in Jonah, but I'm going to try and tie it in at the end. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but we are talking about Jonah. And the question I want you to keep thinking about as we walk through the test, the text this morning is, what does Jonah's anger reveal and what does it say about the upside down in Jonah's heart? So the book of Jonah is unique in the Minor Prophets because it's not a series of messages from God to either his people or to the other nations. It's not direct communication about what God intends to do or what God expects of his people. Instead, it's a short story. It has all of the elements of a really good short story and it doesn't explicitly give us a point. It raises questions that it doesn't necessarily answer, which is the fun part because we have to work a little bit harder at Jonah because it's not explicit. It's a story, it's a narrative. And according to John Golden Gay, it's a narrative with actually three themes, a violent city, a reluctant prophet, and a merciful God. Now, we're, we're going to really focus on chapter 4, the last chapter um, of the book, because it's actually in the last chapter that we get the context for what happens at the beginning of the book. But in order to get to chapter 4, I want to retell the story a little bit if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, or if you're less familiar with the story. Um, it actually begins with God giving instruction, a command to a prophet named Jonah, the son of Amittai. And he actually shows up elsewhere in scripture. His name um, shows up in 2 Kings. We don't know very much about him other than he is a prophet. So God's command begins the book, and it, and it starts this way to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
So Nineveh is a violent um, city, a violent nation, and we learn from the prophet Nahum later in the string of minor prophets, he actually um, prophesies to Nineveh as well. But we learn from Nahum some more specifics about what is this wickedness that is happening in Nineveh? What exactly is kind of the nature of the wickedness? Um, Nineveh's been plotting against Yahweh, plotting against Israel, lying, killing, plundering um, other nations, other peoples, enslaving people. It's, um, it's generally violent and wicked and kind of the same kind of litany of um, wickedness or sins that we've already seen uh, in the Minor Prophets. So the command for Jonah to preach against it is similar to what other prophets um, have been commanded to preach, like Amos or Hosea to preach against the wickedness, to call it out, to highlight the wickedness of the city. That's what he's commanded to do. But Jonah, for reasons that don't become clear until the end of the book, he doesn't want to do that. And so he flees from the Lord, um, turning his back on God's command and instruction to him. But God pursues him. God pursues Jonah in rather dramatic fashion, if you remember the story, right? And, and in his pursuit of Jonah, he displays his power over the created order, um, his power over the seas and the waves and the wind, the storms. He creates a storm as Jonah is on, on the boat. And then he shows and displays his power over the oceans and the animals by bringing a fish to swallow Jonah. And he finally gets Jonah's attention after Jonah spends three days in the belly of this fish. Jonah repents, the fish vomits him out onto land, and then God tries again. Chapter three begins with this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. The command is slightly different this second time, but it's the same basic theme. Go to Nineveh, a great city. Now this idea, this image of great city, um, the phrasing in the image of a great city actually echoes various other places in the Old Testament. I mean, we can hear the echoes of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, texts that describe Egypt as a great nation. A, a great city or a great nation becomes kind of a metaphor throughout the Old Testament for empires for empires and the capital cities um, from which empires control and oppress and destroy and conquer. So Nineveh, go to Nineveh, a great city. Right, so we should already be hearing some things that jog our memories about, oh, a great city, right? The corruption, the wickedness, all of this about, about Nineveh. Um, the second version of the command is for Jonah to proclaim a message to it. This is a little bit different than preach against it. And it might be a hint to the character of God that Jonah is revealing that we're going to see in the book of Jonah. It might be, but we don't know that yet because we have to wait until Jonah actually obeys and then we see the result of his preaching um, in the city. And 
So Jonah walks through the city, he obeys, he goes to Nineveh, he walks through the city, it takes him about three days probably because he is preaching through each of the neighborhoods. Um, not that it's so large that he can't get through it in three days. He probably is going through each neighborhood to make sure that all of them hear the message that God has for them. And he proclaims what we assume is the message that God gives him. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You have 40 days. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, Jonah doesn't say anything about repentance. All he says is that judgment is coming and it will come in 40 days. He is preaching against Nineveh, addressing the wickedness, describing the judgment that's coming. But what happens is, is remarkable. It's really amazing because the Ninevites believe Jonah and immediately begin to repent. In fact, Jonah isn't even done preaching to the whole city before they begin to repent. The king hears about it, he immediately begins to repent, he declares a fast, commands everyone to put on sackcloth and sit in ashes, cover themselves in ashes, a sign of repentance um, and confession. He even requires that animals participate. Animals participate in the fast, and lo and behold, they are to cover their animals in sackcloth and ashes. That's how deep the command is to repent. The whole community is called to repent. Now, they don't know whether or not their repentance will have any effect, but they're called to do it. And just imagine what that must have been like an entire city of people immediately taking a posture of confession, covering themselves with ashes and sackcloth, the visible expressions of confession and repentance, surrounded by their animals, also in ashes and sackcloth. Quite a picture. And they don't know what effect that actually will have. They don't know. But they're doing it in faith that maybe if they repent and confess, something might happen. And they call on Yahweh, Jonah's God, Israel's God. That's who they call on. What we see in Nineveh's response is that they understand what it means to repent. I mean, the king models it. Repentance is demonstrated by the leader of the people. And they don't merely express kind of contrition um, or regret. The king in verse 8 says, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So they understand that repentance meant a turning away from the wickedness, a turning away from the unjust behaviors and actions. They understood that repentance was a turning of the whole self in the opposite direction and the whole community, animals included. They model what God's people should actually do in response to their sin. One of the amazing things about the book of Jonah is that the Ninevites, the enemy of Israel, a violent and wicked city, becomes the model of what the prophets call true repentance. 
at least in this point in Nineveh's history. They don't fare so well later on. But at least in this point in Nineveh's history, they become the model of what true repentance looks like. This little story in the middle of the minor prophets contrasts the false repentance that God has found so offensive in his own people in the other prophets with the true nature of repentance found in a foreign nation. It is such a surprising picture in this book. And now we come to the crux of the matter in the book of Jonah because it begins at this point after the repentance of Nineveh. It begins in chapter 3, verse 10. It says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So we know that the people obeyed the king when he said, you must turn from your evil ways, not just sit in ashes. We know that they actually did that. They turned from their wickedness and their evil actions. And when they did that, God relents. God relents. Between Obadiah and the book of Jonah, we see two sides of God's response to violent nations. Obadiah shows God's judgment when there's no repentance, although there's always openness to repentance. But Obadiah talks about the judgment when there is no repentance. And here we see in Jonah, God's compassion and mercy when there is repentance. Because God responds to sin with judgment and always responds to repentance with mercy. That's his character. That's who he is. So when Nineveh genuinely repents and turns from their wickedness and their evil ways, God extends his mercy and relents of the impending judgment. God gives up his anger. His anger is satisfied through the repentance of Nineveh. Now, many people struggle with this verse because it seems like God is changing his mind. And how does that work with our theology that says God is unchanging? It's because unchanging is about his character. It is his character that is unchanging. He always responds with judgment to sin because of the destructive nature of sin. And he always responds to repentance with mercy. And in contrast to God's action, chapter 4 begins with this way. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah is angry. He pours out his anger toward God, and he's so angry that it has turned into despair and depression to the point of not wanting to live. That's significant and powerful anger. And after Jonah exhausts himself at God, God replies with a very simple question in verse four. But the Lord replied, is it right 
for you to be angry? That's what we want to unpack. Was it right for Jonah to be angry? And what does Jonah's anger reveal? See, Jonah knows all about Nineveh, the wickedness, the violence, the lying, the enslaving. Jonah sees it all, the conquering, the dominating. And quite frankly, he simply wants Nineveh to suffer. He wants the judgment of God to be poured out on the Gentile nation, Nineveh, the wicked enemies of Israel and of God. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Jonah's aware of the wickedness of this city and the larger nation. We can understand that, can't we? I mean, we can understand the attitude that Jonah has towards Nineveh. If we're really honest, sometimes we want people to get what's coming. Sometimes we want people to get what we think they deserve. We're not immune to the same desire for judgment for which Jonah longed. But along with his attitude towards Nineveh, Jonah is a really good theologian. He's a really good theologian. He knows in his head who God is. He knows the character of God. He repeats the recitation that Israel has recited for generations about God, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Those phrases together, that recitation, show up in all kinds of places in the Old Testament. And Jonah knows this about God. And he even goes further and he adds another phrase to that recitation and says, who relents from bringing calamity. That second phrase, that God relents from bringing calamity, is only found in two places, here in Jonah and in Joel. Chapter 2, another minor prophet. Joel's theology is right, but his anger revealed something very different in his heart. Jonah knew who God was. He just didn't like it. He knew who God was. He just didn't like it. Jonah knew that if Nineveh genuinely repented, that God, who is gracious and compassionate, would relent from bringing judgment and extend his mercy. He just didn't like this about God. God set aside his anger, but Jonah couldn't. Jonah couldn't set aside his anger. And in fact, that's the reason Jonah fled from God in the first place. Jonah wanted judgment, punishment, destruction, on Nineveh, and God didn't bring it. And Jonah can't live with the reality of who God actually is, and so he pleads for death. He can't live with the reality that God is a gracious and compassionate God who relents from calamity in the face of repentance. He cannot live with that reality and his anger at the same time. That conflict is too great for him, and it causes him so much anger that he pleads for death. He doesn't want to live with the reality of who God actually is. See, God is angry 
over injustice, violence, idolatry, all kinds of sin, but he loves people. He loves people. And as Jonah proclaimed, he is slow to anger. His heart is filled with longing for all people to come to know him. And so when Nineveh repents and calls out to God, he responds in compassion. Contrast that to Jonah, and the anger in Jonah reveals something else. Whereas God has a heart of compassion and love, Jonah's heart is filled with judgment, not love or compassion. The rhetorical question that God asks Jonah just hangs there in the text. Is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? Is it right? The answer is no. The answer is no. No, Jonah doesn't have the right to be angry. He does not have the right to judge Nineveh when the God of the heavens and the earth has relented of his anger and has shown compassion and mercy. When God has extended compassion and mercy, Jonah doesn't have the right to withhold that and hold on to his anger. But Jonah isn't convinced yet. His anger is still blazing. So he goes outside of the city and he sits down and he waits and he watches and probably hopes for God's judgment to come on Nineveh so that he can rejoice in the destruction. But God pursues Jonah a second time. God pursues Jonah a second time. In verses five to seven, God gives Jonah an object lesson, a metaphor that will reveal, get at what's in his heart. Because God loves Jonah and he's pursuing Jonah just like he's pursuing the people of Nineveh. So God causes a plant to grow and provides shade from the searing heat of the desert. The plant brings welcome relief and comfort. And the text says that Jonah was very happy about the gourd. Jonah rejoices over the comfort that this plant brings. The comfort to himself that the shade provides makes his heart glad. And I think the text almost mocks Jonah a little bit here. His blazing anger turns quickly to happiness in the context of his own comfort. But to continue the lesson for Jonah, God strips away the personal comfort of Jonah. God causes the plant to wither and die and exposes Jonah to the heat and the uh, wind of the desert. And just as quickly as Jonah's anger turned to happiness over his comfort from the shade, it turns back to anger when his own comfort disappears. Verses 8 and 9 say, When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. This is the third repetition of that. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. There is an upside down in Jonah's heart. 
There is a dark other world in Jonah's heart and his anger reveals it. The upside down seeps through the cracks, causing anger and despair and depression to the point again that Jonah doesn't even want to live. And this time Jonah doesn't treat God's question as a rhetorical question and he responds. He tries to justify his anger and hide the condition of his heart. He claims he does have a right to be angry about the plant, about his own comfort being stripped away. He can't let go of his anger because it reveals his heart. It's tied to what is deep in his heart. His focus on self and his condemnation towards others. The compassion he has for himself and the lack of compassion he has for others. That's what's in his heart. That's what's revealed through his anger. And the final scene in this short story is another glimpse of God's pursuit of the prophet, of God's desire to cleanse Jonah's heart. God illuminates the selfishness and the self-focus of Jonah's heart and the lack of compassion, and he contrasts this with his own depth of love and compassion. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The focus of Jonah's concern was his own comfort and an attitude of condemnation rather than concern about the lives and the souls of an entire city of people and their animals. God's concern was for the salvation of Nineveh, that they would know him. Jonah couldn't reconcile his own lack of compassion with God's never-ending capacity to forgive. And what comes is blazing anger. He cannot reconcile those two things. But God always responds to repentance with mercy. The Jewish community has for centuries understood this theme of Jonah. On the Day of Atonement, where the community comes together uh, before God in confession and repentance for the sins, um, for their individual sins and the communal sins of the past year, the second lesson that is read on the Day of Atonement is the book of Jonah. The Jewish community understands that forgiveness and mercy is God's response to repentance, and the story of Jonah reminds them of that every year. God shows amazing mercy for Nineveh and for Jonah. He pursued Nineveh and he pursued Jonah because Jonah was captive to his own anger and his own lack of compassion. He was captive to it. It ruled him. Anger revealed the condition of Jonah's heart. And I want to suggest this morning that our anger reveals the condition of our heart as well. When we find ourselves living in constant anger, when anger is eating us up inside, 
the upside down is seeping through. Our hearts are in trouble. Something is amiss. The warning light is going off. When we secretly long for the judgment of others or we rejoice over the downfall or the suffering of those we don't like or who have hurt us, we find ourselves at the point where we can't live with the amazing nature of God. We can't reconcile those two things either, just like Jonah. And instead of rejoicing in God's mercy for other people and being overwhelmed with his love for the world, we're angry. And we think we have a right to be angry because we want punishment. We want judgment. Now, I don't know where each of us may struggle in this regard, to whom we may have trouble showing compassion or um, the extent or places in our own lives where our selfishness keeps us from extending mercy. I can't speak to where we all are. Maybe it's just one person who has hurt us, wounded us, abandoned us. Maybe it's a whole group of people that you blame for something, a loss of comfort in your life, a change in your life or in the community or in the culture. But to all of us, God says, is it right for you to be angry? If the God of the heavens and the earth relents through Jesus Christ from sending calamity and extends mercy and forgiveness, do we have the right to be angry and hold on to our judgment? Pentecost reminds us that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do this. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can let go of our anger, that we can let go of our judgment and condemnation. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can rejoice when God relents. We can rejoice when people come to know him. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can let all that go. And I think the Pentecost story is so powerful for us because it is a communal event. It is not just us as individuals. That is true. We receive the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit comes on the church communally. And it calls the church communally to let go of our anger and our judgment, to let go of the thinking that we have the right to ask for judgment and condemnation when God desires mercy and compassion. What would it look like to the world if God's people reflected him and this kind of love and compassion and mercy rather than anger and judgment. That, I think, would be a witness to the world. As we come to the table, 
I think this is a great opportunity for us to come before the Lord and ask him very specifically to point out the anger that is in our hearts, the condition of our hearts. It is a good opportunity to ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us to let it go. So I want to encourage us to do that. Let me pray for us. Father, this story reminds us that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. I pray, Lord, first and foremost, that you would clean our hearts, that you would show us what is there, the anger that is there, how it seeps into our lives, and you would help us let it go. Pray, Father, that you'd empower us to do that, and we might find joy and freedom and release when we're able to do that, and that we, as a church and as the people of God, would be a witness to the world of compassion and mercy rather than anger. Should we not be concerned about people around us who do not know you? Should we not extend mercy and compassion? It is only through your son that we can do that and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So please, Father, fill us and enable us to live lives of grace and not anger. In Jesus' name. Amen.